Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. On this edition, where have all the smokers gone? In the 1970s, almost half of us smoked. According to the ONS, this has now fallen to about 13%, about 6.6 million of us. Walk down any street, though, and the gutters that used to be overflowing with cigarette butts are now littered with neon plastic vapes. How are the big tobacco companies responding to this? Are they behind our new addiction to the blue lemonade-flavoured smoke? Or are they, in the words of cigarette company Philip Morris International, committed to delivering a smoke-free future? Here to discuss is Professor Robert Branston, Senior Lecturer at the University of Bath, who recently joined us in the bunker to discuss the privatisation of water. Welcome back, Rob. Hello, thanks for having me back. So we got chatting about cigarettes and there is so much to uncover. But first off, podcasts weren't around in the 1970s, but if they were, the air in the bunker would be acrid. People used to smoke on trains, in hospitals. What's changed? Well, I think a whole number of things have changed. Firstly, I think culture in society has changed. So using tobacco products is simply less acceptable, certainly in a public space, which means, you know, we can go into a bar, into a pub and not be exposed to tobacco smoke in the same way that we were previously. But I think that cultural change has been driven by a whole host of different measures governments have taken in order to reduce the extent of smoking in society. So we see they have introduced a whole suite of rules as to where and when you can uh, use tobacco products. So it is now banned from smoking in cars with children or in public places such as bars and pubs. But also there have been wider regulations such as the fact that tobacco products are now only sold in uh, drab, uh, standardized packaging, the fact you can only buy uh, 20 stick packs of cigarettes, you can no longer have menthol flavored cigarettes. And then beyond that, of course, the biggest measure governments have taken is to raise the price of tobacco products because increases in tobacco excise tax have translated into higher prices in the shops. So now the cheapest pack of factory-made cigarettes is just over £11. A more premium brand is perhaps £16 now. And those prices are being driven by this high rate of taxation. So of those retail prices I just mentioned, 
at least £7.87 is taxation. So you can see it's tax which is driving these higher prices. And people, even if they are addicted to tobacco, are rational consumers. When the price goes up, they will demand less of those products. So we can see there's a variety of things behind this lower rate of tobacco use. How effective have these measures actually been then? Well, I think you sort of have answered that question already yourself because you have given the statistics that show smoking rates have declined significantly since the 1970s when you know the majority of people would be tobacco users at some point in their lifetime. So clearly, all of these measures collectively have worked together to reduce tobacco consumption. But clearly, we still have a large part of society using tobacco products, 6.6 million, I believe you just said. So clearly, not quite enough has yet been done to save the public from tobacco use. And here, I think we have to keep in mind that tobacco is a product that is deadly like no other legal product. More than half of long-term tobacco users will die prematurely from their tobacco use habit. The average smoker will lose something like 10 years of their life. And for every one smoker who dies, there are 30 others who have long-term health-related conditions that are attributable to tobacco use. So on every level, we have gone a long way to addressing this epidemic. But Equally, we still have a long way yet to go to save the public from the perils of tobacco use. How has the industry reacted to these attempts to regulate tobacco? Because I kind of alluded to it a little bit in the introduction. I can't quite imagine them taking this lying down. Well, I think if you look back over the last 40, 50 years, you'll see a continued habit of the industry objecting to any and all regulatory measure that the government has put in place. The industry's argument is that we are providing a product for adults who are free to make a choice as to whether or not they use these products. Of course, that isn't strictly true because we know tobacco products are incredibly addictive. Once you have become addicted to tobacco, it is incredibly difficult to give up. Ultimately, I think the industry wants people to continue to smoke and use tobacco products because they make profits by selling these products to consumers. Now, here I think we have to keep in mind the vast size of the profits being earned. In 2018, the most recent year for which we can find all of the necessary evidence, the world's six largest cigarette manufacturers made combined profits of 55 billion American dollars. Now, that is more profit than the likes of Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, Mondelez, FedEx, General Mills, Starbucks, Heineken, and Carlsberg that those nine companies collectively made, and that is just 51 billion US dollars. Now, here I've picked a random selection of companies, but importantly, these are large global companies that make a variety of different products that have a variety of different brands. But ultimately, even with their large global reach, even with their large portfolios of products, they still collectively make less profit than the tobacco industry. So that vast profitability is what drives the tobacco industry behavior and explains why they want people to keep smoking, because they want to keep making these large profits, which, dare I say it, are as addictive 
as the tobacco products they are making. Vapes, as I mentioned in the introduction, it seems like you can't walk down the street without encountering some kind of plume of smoke in the flavour of mango. And people vape in clubs. They also vape in classrooms. Lots of children also vape. So how is the tobacco industry trying to reinvent itself? Is it invested in vapes? Before we get into the detail behind your question, let's just be clear. Using an electronic cigarette or a so-called electronic nicotine delivery system is different from smoking. So we normally talk about vaping an electronic cigarette and smoking a, a traditional combustion cigarette to sort of reflect the fact that they are different products. We need to recognize, I think, that we are dealing with products that have different health risks. There is a, a report done for Public Health England that suggested the risk of using e-cigarettes was less than 5% of that from smoking. So I think that is really important to understand first up. Beyond that, that doesn't mean, of course, that these products are risk-free. They are, by inherent nature of them, the fact that you are inhaling a chemical into your lungs, risky in answer to your question, what we see in, in the market for these wider nicotine products is that, yes, there are some products from the big tobacco companies, but a lot of the most popular products actually come from independent companies. So I think what we're seeing is more competition in this wider market for nicotine products, which is reducing the control of the tobacco industry. The market is, in that sense, slightly changing. But it's also changing because of the vast array of products that we now see appearing on the marketplace. It's not just about traditional cigarettes or these electronic sort of puff bars that we see uh, available on the streets. We now know that Big Tobacco is also developing a whole other range of these wider nicotine products. So you can get, for example, nicotine pouches, which are a little white almost like a tea bag that you're supposed to put under your lip to deliver nicotine. Similarly, they have a more traditional-like product, which is so-called heated tobacco products, where they get something akin to a cigarette, put it in an electronic device. That device heats up the stick and gives off a vapor, but that is not being burnt in the same way that a combustion cigarette is burnt. Each of those different products has a different profile of risk and cost associated with it. But fundamentally, pretty much all of them are about giving nicotine to consumers in one form or another. And nicotine is the key addictive ingredient of cigarettes. Great. I'm so glad that you brought up nicotine. What actually is nicotine? Nicotine is just a chemical that is found naturally in tobacco leaves. And it is an incredibly addictive substance. Traditionally, nicotine has been used throughout the ages as an insecticide because it is deadly to insects when delivered in uh, sufficient volume. For consumers, uh, nicotine, when put into the human body, has a whole range of effects, but it is a drug effectively that is found in tobacco and related products and, importantly, is the key addictive ingredient. As far as nicotine goes, though, I think it is interesting to note that nicotine throughout history has been used as an insecticide because it does have this negative impact on insects, for example. In that regard, many of the listeners to this podcast will have heard of so-called neonicotinoid pesticides being outlawed in the UK and the EU in recent years because of fears 
that those chemicals were negatively impacting bees. Neonicotinoids just means new forms of nicotine. So in society, we are allowing lots of consumer products which feature nicotine, whilst at the same time outlawing different types of broader nicotine-like chemicals because of their wider impact on society. So I personally just find it very interesting that we allow millions and millions of people to be addicted to a chemical that is very similar to another chemical that we've outlawed. As I mentioned in my introduction, Philip Morris International is pushing for a smokeless future. Is their intention genuine? Well, I think it's very hard to gauge the intention of a tobacco company when by their inherent nature, they're very secretive. Uh, so all we can do is actually look at their actions. And here we can observe that they continue to sell billions and billions of combustion cigarettes which would suggest that they're not keen on changing that quickly. And we can see that they continue to make the vast majority of their profits and their revenues by selling those traditional products. We can also observe the fact that their sales have actually gone up in some markets and some regions of the world for these traditional combustion products. So I think it's very difficult to conclude that they really truly believe in a smokeless future when their actions today suggest they're very happy to continue to sell these deadly combustion products for which they have been made famous over the last few decades. One of Philip Morris International's smoke-free products is the ICOS, or I Quit Ordinary Smoking, and it isn't actually proven to help people stop smoking. Is this health washing? I think ultimately, as I said earlier, the industry is currently making so much profit, it wants to find a way of continuing to make that in the future. And if everyone was to quit smoking traditional cigarettes, then they would have no means of making profits. So companies like Philip Morris have been investigating so-called harm reduction products, products that are delivering nicotine to consumers, but in a way that is potentially less harmful. In the case of ICOS, Philip Morris tells us that it's smoke-free, has a lower risk than traditional cigarettes, but delivers much of the same experience. In actual fact, the health evidence on ICOS is very uncertain. While industry-funded studies would suggest it has lower exposure to toxic chemicals and hence lower health risks, other independent studies have not been able to verify those claims and so the World Health Organization tells us that we should be treating these products as traditional combustion cigarettes and hence uh, regulate and tax them in the same way. So here, I'm not sure I would use the word health washing, but I would certainly be skeptical about such products because they haven't yet been demonstrated to have lower risk profiles. And certainly they don't seem to be products that you could encourage consumers to use as a way of giving up the habit of smoking. There is no evidence that something like an e-cigarette can help people give up smoking. So for me, these heated tobacco products sort of fall in between, and I'm really not sure they're very helpful for public health. So the tobacco industry in the UK is shrinking, but overseas, am I right in thinking it's booming? So do we overlook the prevalence of tobacco internationally? 
Well, I certainly think in countries like the UK, where we have very tight tobacco regulations, where less and less people are smoking, it's very easy to think tobacco is yesterday's problem. But actually, if you look on a global scale, there are many countries and many regions of the world where tobacco consumption is actually going up. Sometimes that's because the industry is very successful in selling its products, or sometimes it's simply because populations are expanding. And so the same proportion of smokers in society translates to more smokers in total. And if you look at global sales, we know that those have been relatively robust. The industry continues to sell many billions of cigarette sticks every year. So I certainly think we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that tobacco use globally is going down in the same way it is in countries like the UK. And that simply isn't true. Anyone who travels regularly will, I'm sure, go to other countries where more people smoke and where restrictions are less. Whenever I travel internationally, I go into a bar or restaurant and people can still smoke. I'm always slightly shocked because it's just not normal anymore in the UK. So I do think the sort of wider perspective does need to be kept in mind when considering tobacco use and how far the UK has come. I'm going to ask you about New Zealand because they've legislated to ban smoking entirely. And I just wondered how the industry is reacting to these kind of policies, because I can imagine that they are reacting quite strongly, but also that they are kind of imagining that it won't happen. Generally speaking, I would say the industry has reacted as we would expect and has they have done with all other regulations we see brought in in the past. So they have ruled out the fact that it could work. So they say, oh, this won't possibly work. They have suggested that the the rules will fuel the illicit market for illegal tobacco products, etc. And all of these things have been proven to be standard industry tactics, which most of the time are false. So, for example, the argument about illicit tobacco is often utilized when it comes to higher taxation, but actually studies have shown that illicit tobacco is more about enforcement. It's more about policing the rules rather than incentivizing consumer behaviors. So, for me, I think the industry is acting as we would expect, and therefore I think we can perhaps just sort of turn a deaf ear to the industry and say this is something new, let's give it a try and let's see if it really will help to drive down smoking rates even further. As a final question then, as long as companies are making big money from tobacco products, do you think we'll ever be rid of cigarettes? I think profits are addictive like the cigarettes that generate them. So, so I certainly think the industry is going to go down kicking and screaming. Uh, but ultimately, I still think that's going to take a number of years to achieve that goal because it is just so addictive. Existing smokers find it very, very hard to give up. And therefore, we're going to have this dwindling pool, I think, of smokers that is going to slowly decline over time. And what we really need is governments to take even more actions to try and increase the pace in which smoking rates decline. Hopefully, in my lifetime, we will reach the situation where smoking is just not seen, not observed. The UK government has actually set the goal of making England smoke-free by 2030. The idea there is that prevalence would drop to about 5% or less within that period of time. Clearly, we've still got a long way to go in those remaining seven years, so I think much more can and should be done. 
But I would hope we would get close to that goal, even if we don't, in fact, make it. So I think there are many policies, for example, the government could take further. I personally find it crazy that the price of my gas, my electric, my water bill, for example, have the prices set by government to protect me as a consumer, and yet the industry can charge any price it likes for a deadly product like cigarettes. So why don't we start fixing the prices, for example, for tobacco products to help us reach this goal of becoming a smoke-free society? Rob, thank you so much for joining me again in the bunker. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing that you're supporting independent media. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomasiewicz. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was presented and produced by Dr. Kasia Tomasiewicz. The assistant producer was Adam Wright and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.